This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome back to Exvangelical, a show exploring the world inside and outside the evangelical subculture, one conversation at a time. This week's episode features a conversation with Nathan Cleveland. We discuss his evangelical childhood, our time at the school that shall not be named, the mystery and power of the Eucharist, the limitations of certainty, and perhaps most importantly, he and I relish in the proper pronunciation of the word evangelical. This talk features adult language, so please don't play it around your kiddos or anyone else's kiddos. You can follow the show on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at Pod. You can also support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash exvangelicalpod. All right, let's get into it. back to Exvangelical. I have with me another friend from my college days, the mystery college we don't mention. His name is Nathan Cleveland. Welcome, Nathan. Thanks, Blake. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining. So let's get started. Uh, let's talk a little bit about where you're from. What part of the, what part of the states are, did you grow up in? Um, I grew up in a military family, actually. So my family are a lot of your podcasts. Um, I realize I might be one of the only non-Midwesterners uh, so far. Um, and we moved around, but not all that much. So Massachusetts for a couple of years, Illinois for a couple of years, and then back to Massachusetts. And then, uh, just as I was, uh, in the middle of middle school or starting middle school, we moved to Pennsylvania, uh, just North Philadelphia. And that is where, uh, not that area of Pennsylvania, but, uh, Pennsylvania in general, where most of my family still reside. Um, and yeah. Okay. So, um, so what was that like? Um, what was being a, a, a military brat? What was that like for you? I mean, I, the only thing I only know really anecdotal things about that, you know, you, you have to learn how to make friends fast, that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, I've, I've never been good at the, the, the making friends fast thing. So, um, I think in, in classic introvert nature, um, yeah, we had our, our base friends. Uh, if we lived on station, it was really easy because there were tons of kids. You didn't really make friends so much as you just kind of played with whoever was around, um, knowing full well that like in a year they're probably moving. Um, and we didn't move all that much. So we were a little bit more constant and we had a life off station too. Uh, it was kind of cool in some ways, like in a boyish dream world. You don't see it that way when you're a kid, I guess. I didn't, but... Uh, you know, being surrounded by jet airplanes. My dad was an air traffic controller. So um, we grew up on an air base. There were always jets, you know, like some of my earlier memories about like when I was 10 or 11 was the first Gulf War and the whole base was on shutdown. And we had to go through these like really intense security checkpoints to get back on station after coming home from school and all of that other stuff. But by and large, I mean, it was a pretty 
pretty normal childhood in the sense that the stations were pretty spacious, um, got a lot of time outside. I played a lot by myself, uh, built forts, things like that. And, um, yeah, I don't know what, I mean, we were, we were pretty poor. Uh, and I don't think I, I realized that until, uh, was probably in college, uh, like to the degree of which we uh, were not, I mean, I guess we'd still be considered lower middle class, but family of five uh, on a Navy salary, Navy enlisted men's salary, you know, it's, uh, it's just a different, different world, but um, we never really, never really knew that. It was, it was kind of fun. And then when we moved to Pennsylvania, we never, we didn't live on stations. So we kind of just bounced around from rental house to rental house as far as a few of them over a series of years. Uh, and two, one of the guys I, I grew up with in Massachusetts, his father ended up being stationed at the same place. So uh, he and I, you know, were high school friends uh, in so much as homeschoolers are high school friends. So, okay. So you are homeschooled throughout as well? No, we went to, uh, well, yeah, oh. uh, middle school and high school. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. Once, once we moved to Pennsylvania, that's kind of when that started. Uh, before then I went to a small Baptist elementary school in Weymouth, Massachusetts. So, Okay. And are you the oldest of your siblings? I'm not. I'm the middle. The middle. Um, okay. Yeah, I'm the middle. I'm the oldest of the youngest, but I'm the middle. <laughs> okay. Um, so what was your what was um what was your church life like in those early days? Oh well. Complicated? Uh no, I mean I I, I loved church uh growing up, but my parents uh, my parents were products of the Jesus movement, sort of like seventies and, uh, they became Pentecostal. And, uh, so I, I, my earliest memories of church, uh, I think I was actually just sharing the story with my wife the other night. I was probably four or something. We were living in Illinois. Um, and you know, Wednesday night clubs, I think a lot of people did that in our evangelical background. Um, but there was this thing called Royal Rangers. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Um, but my two older brothers and my father were both involved. And it was at this big Assemblies of God church in uh, somewhere in Illinois, just uh, the Waukegan area north of, northwest of Chicago. Okay. And um, I really wanted to go with them. And I think I'd been allowed to go like once or twice just to tag along, probably to get one less kid in my mom's hair on a Wednesday evening or whatever it was. And, uh, but I was like dreadfully sick that night. And I don't, you know, all I remember is like bawling because I wasn't allowed to go to church. Um, but then I turned around once the door closed and I vomited all over the carpet. You know, that's one of those things that's kind of my thing. But my parents tell me that when I was really little, I used to stand on top of the coffee table and like with a block as a microphone and practice preaching to stuffed animals and to other things like that. And so, I mean, my whole childhood was saturated with church and it was three times a week, three hour services on Sundays. Um, just, everything revolved. And then, I mean, obviously going to a Christian elementary school and then being homeschooled and then going to an evangelical college and then off to seminary. Uh, immediately after that, I sort of never lived outside of that sphere. Um, and uh, I really, I, I don't know, there's, I think, a strange confusion um, because I, I really loved 
when I was a child, I really loved uh, like worship and Bible study, and I was a really fucking good Christian kid. Um, <laughs> and I was like knew all the Bible verses, got the Catechism Award in kindergarten. Um, I suffered, maybe still suffer, uh, from severe case of sort of deontological obligation. Um, you know, sort of duty based. And being a middle child, wanting to please, and all of the things that go along with that, if you want to analyze that, you're free to. Um, but I was always like a leader. Uh, by the time I was in high school, I was um, the one of the two students who was on the like the leadership team for uh, our youth group in Pennsylvania, and like went to conferences on youth ministry out actually out in Chicago and. Uh, ran the soundboard and was on the worship team, led small groups, things like that. It was uh, all always very involved. And then there were clubs, like there was Royal Rangers when I was little, and then there were Sparkies. I don't know if you ever heard of Sparkies. You know? No, I've never heard of we, that one. Yeah, there's a great little ditty. We are sparks for Jesus, sparks to light the world. We will <laughs> shine for Jesus as we tell each boy and girl. We will hide God's word in our heart. We will serve him right from the start. From his love we never never will part, for we are sparks, 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 sparks to light the world. Um, so that was our little ditty. Um, and then there was a thing called Christian Service Brigade, um, which is, uh, man, I'm forgetting a lot of that. That was Wednesday Night Clubs. Um, it was kind of like Boy Scouts, but Christian. And uh, I went to that at the local Baptist church in Pennsylvania. I uh, was really involved in camping trips with them and, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff that you do, Bible verses and all of that stuff. So, I mean, to say that my childhood was saturated by uh, Christianity would be an understatement. I think I was drowning in Christianity. Um, even though that's not a pleasant image, I think that it was simply so pervasive that seeing anything outside of that world was very, very difficult. I, I honestly, between the sort of isolation of growing up on a military base or in a military family and in a pretty, pretty private family uh, in a lot of ways. And then also with Sundays, Fridays, Wednesday, so youth group was Fridays and Wednesdays was Christian service brigade and Sundays morning was church and then all the youth group kids would go out for lunch after church. Um, and then there were small groups on Sunday night that the families would do. So we're talking like, it's like a halftime job, you know, of, of, of being a Christian, going to church, you know, and doing that. And everything was really experience driven. Um, the church we went to before we moved to Pennsylvania. So I want to say from like 1986 to 1991, um, 92 was a part of the four square denomination, um, which is a, a California based Pentecostal charismatic denomination. And, um, is that similar to like, I think Maranatha or. Yeah. Yeah. I believe so. Yeah. We only use Maranatha songs, I think. Okay. So, yeah, yeah, I knew I knew someone in um my hometown in Crawfordsville whose dad was a uh was a Maranatha pastor and I went to a couple of his services too. Okay. So, um and yeah, 
Dan, I I remember his his first name. I think also was I think he went by Nate, and uh, um, he was big into Star Wars. But that's the only I went to like a youth group thing with him once. But that was my only mm-hmm. experience with a Foursquare or Maranatha. Yeah, and my memories of it are on because we it, I was so young. Um, I mean, that's where I was supposedly slain in the spirit um, during that time. We can circle back on that later if you want to. Um, and, and the idea of people speaking in tongues, this is, this is very apocalyptic, you know, kind of feel the things, uh, that obviously I've, I've come not to see the world that way, um, nor Christianity, but, uh, it was like, Jesus is coming back. He's coming back so quickly at any time. Uh, I actually remember shy of my 10th birthday being like pissed. Now I wouldn't say it that way when I was 10. I didn't swear. I would think ever out loud until probably my junior year of college. I don't know at the, the school that shall not be named. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I think we can equate I and mean, there's some sort of Voldemorty thing going on there sometimes. Um, anyway, <laughs> but uh, I remember being pretty pissed uh, at God because I wanted to, not just be 10, but I like wanted to grow up. I had a crush on a girl. Um, and I was like, I want to, you know, I'm going to get be 20 and like be married. But if Jesus comes back, like they're saying he's coming back anytime. Well, that means I'm never going to be able to do these things. And that's really shitty. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Um, so. Wow. That, I mean, that's, uh, that's, that's a lot for a child to experience. Um, and I mean, you, you did mention, you did mention that you had a a sense of duty or obligation. Um, was there something else that sort of prodded you towards that or was it, I mean, can you, with time, have you been able to sort of pull those things apart and see how much of your experience was because of this sense of duty that you had to attend all these things and how much was, your sort of innate curiosity or your tendency towards religion, that sort of thing? Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know that I've really, uh, this is part of the reason why I'm really grateful. You asked uh, me to join the conversation um, amongst really such an August body of, of, of gentlemen so far. Um, you know, when I was a kid, uh, I think there was just this, I, I think some of it's military family too. I was in a youth military organization called the United States Naval Sea Cadet Corps, um, which is like the Boy Scouts, but for the Navy. And I actually did that from the time I was 11 to 18 years old. Um, and so the idea of following the rules and respecting authority and um, being virtuous and diligent, like I don't, See, I don't look back on that necessarily and say that was bad because, like, I thought it was pretty good. Um, but at the same time, much in the same way that politics and religion get conflated, I think um, Christian duty and, like, a sense of family duty, and I, I just never wanted to disappoint, you know? Um, I was a good kid. I got great grades. Um, didn't rock the boat. Knew the right answers. And well-respected, I think, um, and 
probably really annoyed other kids um, because I was that kid. I was the do goody kid, you know. Um, and I'm sure, like, I, I don't know, can you relate to that at all as far as your childhood? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I there there was definitely something there that just made me want to, you know, follow the rules and understand the rules and stand mm-hmm. up for the rules and 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 uh, uh yeah I, I definitely get that <laughs> so i i guess i haven't really i mean i i think i've unpacked it as an adult more in experience than in uh, breaking apart all of those pieces this is part of the beginning of a process for me um to really go back and start digging through um a lot of that stuff and determining what is really traumatic and what is not. And like what areas of growth, because I'm not really, I don't regret or it's very difficult to regret how you experience life. You know, mm-hmm. um, it, <clears throat> we can regret our choices and stuff like that, but, um, I, it, not knowing anything different, um, and being who I am, whoever that is, um, it made, it just made sense. Like the world was orderly. Um, if I did these things, God would love me. Um, and I think obviously conflating God and parents, you know, because we didn't, I, it wasn't an idyllic. My parents are really wonderful, but you know, five kids are all very five different personalities. And, um, you know, there were a lot of, traumatic things in our family life too that occurred uh through those years and i think that's the stuff that i'm trying to go back and really figure out and begin um begin unpacking um and i'm not gonna lie it's not it's one it's very painful and it's sad um and and so this conversation i'm 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 really hoping is going to help spur some of that uh that reflection yeah and and um, I don't think you mind me saying you have a, you have a son now, so I, I mean, do. That's a that that definitely also being a parent that sort of going through being a parent yourself makes you reflect on a lot of things, you know, mm-hmm. good good and bad, and it just I think it spurs a, a new new period of development. Um, so yeah, I certainly don't certainly don't want my son to um, experience Christianity the way that I did, but I'm also not naive, um, that I think the ghosts that we carry inevitably, um, you know, raise, rear their head, uh, in our daily lives. And we really do have to be, I like, I have to be vigilant about it. Um, you know, and I think addressing these questions like, well, you know, sin was a real big category, um, an enormous category growing up. Uh, and this sense of like pursuing holiness, um, while simultaneously being somewhat Calvinistic in our theology, it was very bizarre. Um, if you, if you think about it, we can kind of delve down that road, but, um, or maybe not. Um, uh, let's start. Well, I, I want to unpack yeah, a couple things. Yeah. I want to unpack a couple sure. things before we get, um, a little further along in your story. Um, okay. Let's start with what you just mentioned, um, about, sin being a big part how did that manifest in in how did that <laughs> I, I know i tend to repeat myself but how did that how did that manifest in your childhood or within your your mental life as an adolescent 
Well, um, because my role was always to be good, um, anything, my, my perceived role, you know, I, I think it would be unfair to my parents to say that that was their expectation. Um, but my perceived role to always be good and, uh, led to a real overdeveloped sense of privacy, um, and a real overdeveloped sense of secrecy, um, and not really feeling free to talk about things that I was exposed to or that happened, um, or really not even being able to talk about sin because sin was so broad, you know what I mean? Like, because I think this, this thought or like, I hate my brother or sister, or they <clears throat> really annoyed me like, well, that's sinful. And so I've got to pray about this. So it was like this constant cycle of like repenting, repenting of things. And then also like the insecurity of like, well, if I'm doing these things, then am I really a Christian? You know, am I saved? Um, you know, I, I countless times, you know, whatever that sinner's prayer is, you know, praying that prayer between the ages of six and 17 or 18, you know, and, and never being really certain and always wanting to be certain, but knowing my own imperfections, but not feeling free to talk about them. Um, because I thought that it would rock the boat and disrupt the one peaceful part of our like life <clears throat> or my life and my perception of myself and my family and my community. Um, now I didn't do anything egregious when I was too terribly young, of course, but like there was, so going back to the whole, uh, being slain in the spirit thing. And that was uh, the other thing I wanted to loop back yeah. to. So that's perfect. Yeah, there was, um, it would have been, you know, I was seven or so and it was in, in Rockland and, and there was an evening service and we had a visiting preacher. Um, and of course, you know, I went up, you know, when the invitation went, because I honestly, I, I really can't get into what my intentions were at that point in time. You know, I, I don't really know. I just know that, it was, they were mixed. Um, it kind of thought it was something that I should do. It seemed to be, it was never pushed by my parents to do it, but, um, it seemed like other people were doing it. People I liked and respected. And so I went up and the guy like put his hand on my forehead and like nothing happened, you know, in the sense, like I was not overtaken by anything and I'm like, but everybody else is falling over. So I should probably do that. Now, I don't know if it was convincing or really crappy stage work, uh, but I did uh, end up lying on the floor. And then I was calculating in my mind, how long do I need to be here for it to be convincing for this? So I can't be the first person to stand up because that I'm the first person. That means maybe the gift isn't as whatever. So pretend speak in tongues that one time or whatever else, never did that again. Uh, and many years later uh, in high school, an older gentleman in um, our church in Pennsylvania, uh, one of the elders of the church where, I mean, we had, a, there was a word every Sunday, like every Sunday, like, and there was ostensibly an interpretation every Sunday. And, you know, like they were things like the church would base its mission off of these things, you know, like they'd become hallmarks of what we were doing. Um, this one gentleman asked me one time, he's like, you know, how's your, how's your prayer life? You know, I'm like, well, I guess. Okay. Um, it's like, well, are you, are you speaking, you know, or speaking in tongues? And I was like, well, no, I, I don't really never really had that gift. Um, 
And immediately it turned from, oh, interesting, instead of saying, oh, interesting, to, um, oh, well, <clears throat> you must have some secret sense that you're, you're not confronting because, like, if you have the gift, then you've got the gift. And, like, the only thing that keeps it from manifesting are the like, sin. So, um, of course, that, like, builds into the whole wanting to be dutiful and never suffering and just like singing the songs and raising your hands and dancing in the aisle and all of those different things that people do. Um, very emotionally driven. Uh, and so in that sense, like I think the idea of sin and like, I mean, let's be honest, like every other teenage boy, um, and I know I'm skipping around historically here, but like every other teenage boy, um, in the entire world figures out for the first time ever that they can masturbate. And this is a really wonderful thing. Um, but, uh, having never really had the talk, my parents gave me a book, um, or anything like that, not really knowing what to expect. And also going at that point in time, being homeschooled, like really not exposed to conversations about these things. Um, it was like, Oh my goodness. Like, is uh, Oh, I did this. I'm sinning. You know, I'm sinning because of these impure thoughts, which I mean is possible. I'm sure that I mean I, I have a very uh, complicated. Uh, no, it's not complicated. It's pretty straightforward. Like, you know, with our the purpose of our bodies and, and different things like that. I, I think a lot about, but like I was exposed to, I think pornography for the first time when I was seven or eight. Um, by uh, some some boys in the woods, you know, as we were running around, I had no idea what I was even looking at, you know, and that that's fine. It didn't really have an immediate effect, but um, like, and then there was a, <clears throat> a stash behind the school, so those are like younger memories. But then, when like thirteen, fourteen years old, and all the hormones are running, and you're not allowed to date anybody, and you're not allowed to do like anything and that expressing that you're having these feelings and these urges, I mean, it's just like, you don't, nobody talks about, it, you know? So that then became a burden of, I mean, it's such a silly thing, you know, but it became a burden to, to carry alone because, you know, that's the, and you know, honestly, just as like a part of the story, what ended up happening is that I, 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 uh, was caught stealing, a uh, Playboy video from the West Coast video down the street from my parents' house in ten, uh, Telford, Pennsylvania. And um, I was just shy over 18 years old. Um, and I was mortified. And they didn't press charges, but um, inevitably that letter from, I mean, it was reported and the police came and all that other stuff. Um, actually wrote about this in, in, in the school that shall not be named, uh, uh, one of the professors, uh, one of the writing professors, uh, encouraged me to write, uh, something that was not so compare and contrast something personal. And so I kind of wrote about this experience, oh, wow. um, uh, all those years ago. Um, and, uh, I'm like, if you want a personal experience, this is the one I've got. Um, so, you know, about two weeks later, a letter arrives in the mail and I was working at the supermarket because I worked about, uh, um, I think about 30 hours a week at the supermarket, um, on top of school and my community college classes and stuff toward the end of high school. And, 
I got home from work at about 1030 and walked into the, the living room and my parents were sitting in the dining uh, in the, the, the living room and watching a movie. And they said, Nathan, some mail came for you. Uh, it's on the, the counter. And I went and saw and it was like a letter with the seal, official seal of the state of Pennsylvania, you know, in the in the top corner. And I like just started crying and it brought, you know, brought it into the living room. Um, and now my parents were under the assumption that I'd gotten a speeding ticket. That's, you know, which it's bad enough. Right. Um, but like the golden boy, the, the one who does everything right all the time. Like I remember that day, the day that it happened, like I went home and I was just, I went and laid down in bed and like was just immobile and crying. And uh, my mother came up um, and she was just like, are you okay? I'm like, I'm just not feeling really well, you know, brush it over. And then fast forward two weeks later, sitting in the living room, uh, and then just telling them actually what had happened, you know, and, and what it was. And then I had to go get fingerprinted and then I had to pay a fine of like, I don't know, it was like between three and $600. Um, and <clears throat> for me, this was like, earth shattering. I, of course, like I went and talked to my pastor about it, uh, because I was like serving on the leadership team and the youth group. And he's like, you know, don't worry about it. But my parents in that moment, you know, I, I, I don't think that any, anybody knows what to do, but I was clearly a mess. And, um, you know, they, they comforted as best they could. And of course we prayed in the living room, you know, that I would be freed from this, uh, particular addiction and um but that builds back into like the secrecy and the hiding things and uh not wanting to be real like in front of anybody because being real meant like breaking down the narrative you know and if the narrative is perfection um and if christianity is about being perfect then there's no real room for uh this type of thing so that's a story for you <laughs> yeah um, i mean that's and you have all these adults from what you're from your story. You have this random person mentioning you have secret sins that your prayer life and you've you've got a secret that I mean it's all it's secrets the secrets is the narrative. I mean that's gotta be just so heavy for a hormone laden teenager to it's it's heavy heavy as an adult you know yeah this is yeah absolutely uh, i mean but to me i i mean definitely hearing you tell that story i and i i was just trying to imagine what it would be like to process a um was it a man telling you about asking you about your prayer life you know and he yeah yeah it was it was a gentleman a gentleman in the church yeah and you're you're filling in you're you're filling in probably through your own mind, you may have been filling in that this guy probably doesn't have this problem or something. And he's an adult, um, you know, and, and then you just have to keep working on it by yourself in secret. And that's, yeah, that's, that's, Oh man, that's, that's a lot to take in. Yeah. Um, And it's, I mean, but I, that's thank you for sharing that. Um, cause I know that, I know that there are all sorts of other, all sorts of other guys that have had to, uh, and, and girls like anyone that has had to like try to process, 
um, just kind of growing into yourself, <laughs> puberty and all the things that that involves. And mm-hmm. then when you add a, a, a veneer of this purity stuff, um, it just can become damaging in all sorts of ways. Um, and I don't have, I don't have any anywhere near like, uh, either authority or experience or anything to kind of really address those things. Um, within other than just kind of being empathetic and, and sympathetic. Um, yeah. But, well, uh, and that, and interestingly, I mean, it's uh, the, the, the thing is I was functionally a, I mean, I was, I was a little adult in every other aspect of my life. You know, I worked a job and I was in leadership and it's re- so these are the things thinking back, you know, uh, a lot about, um, I don't have anything much to say about that right now, but, um, uh, it's very confusing. It's very confusing, but you power through, you know, you, you know, stiff upper lip and you just try harder, you know, and, and, and God will reward your effort you know, in, in some ways. So that's all just for the, for the record, I don't believe that God is a God of rewards, but that being said, um, so you're inundated with Christianity on all sides, all throughout your high mm-hmm. school experience. Mm-hmm. When you, when it came time to choose a college, did you only ever really look at Christian colleges? Was it kind of a, a given that you would be doing that? This is a question I like to ask everyone because everyone has a a little bit of a different answer. Well, I don't think it was a, there was certainly not a given to it. It, um, it's been, it's been enjoyable listening to, um, some of the other guests, uh, talk about how they, they found their way to the school that shall not be named. And, (laughs) uh, um, my, my reasons had nothing to do with, youth group or anything like that. I applied to two schools. Um, I applied to the U S Naval Academy and I applied to the school. Um, and the reason why I applied to the school was that is where my cross country coach, uh, I ran for a private Christian school all through high school. So I did sports through this private school. Um, and my cross country coach and drama teacher, his, his oldest daughter had gone there. Um, she was a year or two ahead of me. And then um, his daughter in my grade, actually, she was my girlfriend the second half of senior year in high school, which was hugely scandalous because I wasn't supposed to date anybody. Uh, um, and she was going there. So I, I jokingly say I ended up there because that's where my girlfriend went. Um but after visiting, like I visited Gen- Geneva College and I visited a couple of other places, um, state school was out of the question just because like I, I was like fervently anti-secular. I'm like, I'm not going to a secular school. Um, I was I was a zealot. I mean, Blake, I don't know how to you were. Um, I don't, what years were you there again? Uh, oh, one to oh five. OK, so I was there ninety nine to 2003. Um and when I started, I was like still holy roller, you know, plowing for heaven, you know, kind of whatever, just not really Pentecostal anymore. But so I kind of went there because that's where my girlfriend went. But I really went because um, 
I liked the political science department and I liked the cross country coach and um, they gave me scholarship money, you know, and my parents like college wasn't a given. Um, neither of my parents went to school. Um, and you know, I think the, they knew I wanted to go and, uh, they were like, well, if you go to a private school, you just better pray for scholarships because that's the only way this is going to happen. Um, and I was very fortunate in three quarters of my college education was paid for, um, you know, by, by some means or another. And, uh, I'm really, really grateful for that. And it's sort of reading your post about privilege, uh, on medium. It's one of those things that I think about, like, I don't have those, like I'm a white male Christian, um, you know, all the different things, but like uh, when I want to be charming as hell too. So these things work out and, you know, it, it happened. So I ended up there, but I ended up earlier than a lot of other people because I did go across country camp. Uh, needless to say, the relationship didn't last longer than February as happens. Um, <laughs> and um, that was the end of you know, like any dating. I didn't date anybody in college. So, um, but I ended up there and I really, really, really loved uh, the social sciences department because the worldview that was espoused and rigorously hammered home. I, I had yet to develop a real critical, uh, the real critical faculties to unpack that. And it matched so closely with how I was raised that the transition from high school to college was pretty seamless and like straight in and like I helped found the college Republicans at the school. Um, I was the treasurer. Uh, I only did that for a year, uh, but yeah. And you know, they, the big thing that they talked about when they were recruiting was, um, you know, the best spiritual life of any Christian college in the United States and all this other stuff. And that was great and true. And I think for the first semester, like I was really gung ho about all of that. Um, I was not gung ho about forced community and the norms. Um, because I am an introvert and I don't like socializing with people if I don't have to. Um, <laughs> I'm right there with you. Keeping, so, oh man, uh, let's see. So, um, one anecdote uh, about that in particular. Uh, my freshman year, POD was popular in, okay. in, the, in music. And so they had plastered everywhere. POD meaning please open door. Um which oh, yeah. Yeah. was, I, I just want to keep my damn door closed. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, so. And so one of the, one of the interesting um, encounters, the first, um, first couple days, my parents dropped me off. Um, I think my, my mom cried a little bit and they left. And then there was two weeks of cross country camp, you know, before the semester. So I had like a built in group of friends and, uh, um, we, we drove out to Colorado Springs all together and did cross country camp out there and got back to school. And then I met my roommate, uh, who was another runner, but not a cross country runner. And we lived in the freshman dorm, um, because that's where we were assigned and his parents dropped him off in the room. I'd already been there for a little bit and, uh, the door closed and he turned around to me and he said, just so you know, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe in any of that bullshit. I'm here because my parents made me be here. I have to do a year. And if I'm unhappy after a year, I get to leave. So long as we're on the same page and you're not going to try to talk to me about Jesus, we're going to get along just fine. 
you know? <laughs> and so Holy I'm cow. like, all right, <laughs> that's <clears throat> welcome. Welcome to the complications of an evangelical college. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you were, and, <laughs> sorry, go ahead. Continue. Oh, sorry. I, I remember later that year and I just sort of passing back, but the, the RD at the dorm approaching me and asking me, he's like, how's your roommate doing? Like, do you see anything you don't, it was two times in college. I was asked to rat on people. Um, and neither time did I, but, um, in this, this instance, uh, he's like, we really think you're a good influence on him. Like, and, like, you know, just keep doing what you're doing. I'm like, all I'm doing is keeping the peace, man. You know, like, I'm just keeping the peace in my room. Uh, so I don't know what you're talking about here. You weren't doing uh, espionage for Jesus. No, no spying for Jesus. Because God can see and knows everything, right? Because he's like Santa Claus on crack. Um, yes. So like, why does he need spies? Just saying. <laughs> So you enjoyed, I mean, so you mentioned that you enjoyed social sciences. Um, I, I, I I've talked to, I've talked to at different times that, that I was a bit on the, a bit on the opposite spectrum, but I, I did come in to, uh, school in general, um, with the same, with a, I, what I feel like is a similar cheerful optimism about things, um, mm -hmm. which just through the virtue of being, an adolescent and being surrounded by other adolescents, um, I kind of began to get chipped away. Part of for me was just kind of, I, I had this sort of fairy tale vision of what, um, what a Christian college would be like that, you know, everyone would, it'd be like a utopia, you know, mm -hmm. like, like everyone believes the same thing ostensibly. And, um, and we won't have to deal with all the different things that have to that humans have to deal with <laughs> like we'll just ascend right. there'll be we'll just ascend into more christ-likeness or something i don't know what i had in my head um but yeah. <laughs> but that's that's kind of uh i felt crestfallen because you know within the first couple of nights in an all-male dorm that sort of um house house of cards just came falling down really fast mm. Um, what, what was the uh, what were the things that got the that about living in an all male male dorm that got that going? Oh, I don't know. I mean, just like what up one upmanship, um, which I've never really been a fan of, but also um, like adding religion to that one upmanship, mm -hmm. like you know, people joking about you know, are you even a Christian? Like, yes, of course I am. I'm here at this school. I want to be a pastor. Like, uh, mm -hmm. you know you're a youth ministry major. Like why, why are you joking about this? Um, you know, I don't know. I, uh, and then, you know, in short order, I kind of just kind of became cynical about things and that cynicism lasted a long time. But, um, regardless, what sort of, uh, did, did sort, did this sort of your, love affair with evangelicalism, however you want to phrase it. Did that start to um, come to an end during college? What was that like for you? I mean, it definitely, it definitely did. I mean, that's the short answer. Um, not my love affair with Christianity, necessarily. Uh, and I think it's really important to distinguish the two. But uh, 
it sounds like a lot of people in sophomore year have their crisis. And I think this is like perfectly natural. Um, but my freshman year, I think, I mean, I went to, for as far as attending church, I went to the Christian Missionary Alliance Church down the street because that's where the cross-country guys went. Uh, there was no way in hell I was going to go to a Wesleyan church. I was not Wesleyan. I was a Calvinist. You know, this was not, I was very proud. I even had an email address that I created for the purposes of uh, school stuff, you know, jcalvin7 at hotmail.com. Um, and <laughs> nice. just to like piss off all the Arme- Armenians, uh, Armenians, Armenians, whatever. Uh, Joseph Armenians, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Armenians, yeah. Um, and, you know, but by the, so the, I was really glad to be free of a Pentecostal environment. I never once went to a Pentecostal church while in college. And so I think that's the first time that freshman year that I actually ever felt broadly evangelical. I didn't know that that was a term because I just thought of myself as being a Christian. Um, and that uh, is interesting. Listening, I was listening to Ryan's uh, podcast while on the plane this morning <clears throat> and the whole like, well, Catholics aren't Christian and the Eastern Orthodox aren't Christian. And those like mainline folks are like, they're really borderline, you know, <laughs> we're, we're the real Christians. There's like a terrible Gnosticism um, in, in, in that way of thinking. And I actually, I think the evangelical movement is at least in the West. Um, I, I, I'm not evangelical right now, so I, I, I don't like the, the moniker. I think that it's a false separation, but um it is it is Gnosticism with the idea of utopia wed into it. And um, we know the secret knowledge of the love of God, but you have to become like us to partake in that so you can get out of here with us, too. Um, and I don't think it is ever <clears throat> that overt or that malicious, but um, that's essentially what it is. And in my freshman year, um, taking a lot of history, political science classes, uh, with, uh, the faculty member who has been mentioned a number of different times, like the one thing that I don't ever look back on and regret regarding that, even though the, I, I reject the ideas of the biblical Christian worldview that are espoused by he and Francis Schaeffer and, and, and that whole, uh, sort of Kuyperian, um, school of thought. Um, it's like, it's like Christian triumphalism or, uh, sort of Calvinistic triumphalism, um, the rigor and the, the workload were things that I really appreciated and, and enjoyed. And I loved the reading and, uh, and, and, and having to like work really, really hard. Um, and also to have, it was like the last battle, like the things that I didn't like about being Pentecostal, you know, the, the emotional feely stuff that had to date been really, um, disappointing because I was left feeling empty uh, and not feeling the things that other people talked about feeling, but pretending to feel them and desperately wanting to feel them, you know, because the feeling was the, was the method of knowing it was the means of, of really, really engaging in the, the work of God through the spirit in your life. And then this is for everyone. And I wasn't, and didn't really ever feel it. I could, I could gin it up you know, in particular circumstances, you know, super long worship service or something like that. Um, but even then I knew at the end, like cognitively that I had not experienced what I thought I had experienced. Um, and so that had already fallen away, but the, 
even if it was a circular logic, the rigorous approach to uh, understanding history as of and unto God and the whole arc of Western tradition being the best thing in the world. And then, of course, like John Paul II, you know, let's forget that he's Roman Catholic, um, and Margaret Thatcher, the, the trinity of uh, JP2, Margaret Thatcher, and Ronald Reagan, it was just speaking my language, you know, like the justification of the political unity of the, the the church of God in the world and the triumph of God's will working through history and making these things happen. That really resonated. And um, because it gave intellectual ammunition to the fightiness that I already had. And all I wanted to do my pressure was win arguments with people. So I'd never had a forum to do it in. And I really, really loved doing it. Um, which is a problem because like that isn't what we're supposed to be doing. Um, so, but by the time second semester rolled around, there was a particular chapel service where uh, um, a young lady was presenting about a partnership that the university was making with Uganda. Um, and I, I don't, with the nation, I guess it like, was really not specific uh, <laughs> um, sort of spiritual <laughs> commitment. Um, and so at the end, something happened that just remind, like brought me right back to like my childhood and the sort of, sort of compulsory, not compulsory needing to respond to the move of the spirit in the room. And, um, you know, it's like, can you stand with me and let's pray for Uganda, um, which is actually a virtuous and good thing, but not in that context. And, and uh, um, myself and I'm sitting with, I was still dating uh, the young lady. Um, my, I, I was sitting next to her and, so, and, and everybody stood up and she stood up and I just stayed in my seat. I'm like, I'm, I'm not doing this. Even if I agree with you, like by standing up does not make me mean anything more meaningfully. You know, like that I can sit here and mean what you mean without having to stand up and, and do all this stuff and, and pray and come to find out a track practice later that afternoon. None of the guys on the cross country team stood up. They were all in different parts of the chapel, you know, the big auditorium. And um, that was a, a pretty, that was sort of, it would have been January, February of my freshman year. Um, that was like just one of those moments that, um, and I could, I could have the dates wrong, but uh, as far as the months, um, that really, it was like a critical impulse. I'm like, no, there's something not right about this. You know, there's something not right. Um, this was not considered. And so, but then the year plugged on and I stayed in social sciences and I never, you know, even by the time that I finished school, I didn't have any huge ideological breaks with um, with the faculty in the social sciences department. But I did have um, other breaks with them. And it, during my sophomore year, I mean, like we all do, um, a friend handed me Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse Five, you know, um, and I had never really read fiction. And uh, growing up, I read a lot of history, read the newspaper, political science. I was a serious kid um, to the point where I like, had used a little panic attacks in high school and started getting gray hairs when I was 16. Um, and that I don't know if that was the thing that changed, uh, but it was just so compelling. And I'd never thought about war um, or destruction in those terms. And um at the same time, I was starting to take philosophy classes just to dice it up a little bit. Um, 
and I stopped going to church. It was the only period in my whole life, you know, that I really went without going to church. Um, it's about five or so months just didn't go, you know, except for like, if I was at home with my parents, you know, going with them. Um, but the benefit of, you know, living 12 hours away is you're not home all that often. Um, and at the end of that, uh, friend, I thought about transferring out, um, because it just didn't feel, I didn't, I, I, I felt outside, you know, I just didn't, I didn't really know anybody. Um, and it was that second semester of sophomore year that I ended up meeting a bunch of the people who ended up becoming some of my still closest friends. But also, uh, at the end of that semester, a friend, uh, she's like, where do you go to, where are you going to church right now? I'm like, I'm not really. She's like, we should, uh, join me at this, the, the Lutheran church down the street, uh, St. James. And it's like, okay. Service was seven thirty in the morning, Blake on Sunday. I want to go to the <laughs> traditional one. Um, but I was a historic early riser. I ate breakfast every single day in the dining hall. I was up at six o'clock every single day. I was at breakfast at seven and I took seven fifty classes if I could pack the week full of them. Um, and I went and it was the first time, I mean, I had been to a Catholic church as a kid when I did a sleepover at a friend's house, you know, they went to Saturday mass, like a guitar mass. And I went, and it was kind of foreign to me and I couldn't do anything because I wasn't Catholic, you know? And I mean, Catholics aren't Christians anyway, after all. Um, so <laughs> that's fine. And I went to this Lutheran church, um, and the, the priest, uh, Carl Carlson or something like that. Um, you know, it was the first time I'd seen an altar, uh, and that, you know, the priest facing the altar of the minister or whatever Lutherans, it was a Lutheran church, Missouri Synod. And, um, it was also like communion was a real thing. And it was like, you could see the separations in the service. So for the rest of college, that is, um, that's where I went to church. Um, I never really felt a part of the, the broader spiritual life of the campus beyond that point. Um, but theology classes and philosophy classes were like a real salvation for me. Um, I ended up dropping both history and political science entirely, uh, over a disagreement about course scheduling. And I'm just being a homeschooler used to doing my own thing, you know? And I was just like, no, this should count for that. And I'm not going to budge. So I just like went to the registrar's office and dropped the majors and never had a conversation with that faculty member again. Um, it wasn't because I'm angry with him. It was just like, all right, the way you want me to go is not the way that I want to go right now. And I want to take these literature classes and these philosophy and religion classes. And there's like, a, there was that historic struggle between the religion department and, um, and, uh, and the social sciences department. And it's funny because though I started, it was history, political science, and youth ministry, um, major. And, uh, youth ministry, like right after taking intro to pastoral ministries, because I'm like, well, this is bullshit. I'm not going to do that. Um, so, and, uh, and also it wasn't Wesleyan, so it didn't really matter. Um, but there were things like, um, we used to, we used, we didn't do it. It was my sophomore year. One of the faculty members helped facilitate it, one of the religion faculty. Um, and we called it starving theologians and we would meet at the old coffee shop that got torn down. Um, 
you know, on a Tuesday night. And the idea was that somebody would prepare like a 500 word, um, it's like a debate club, you know, like 500 word argument. Um, and then those of us who were there, we would debate the points. And uh, it was during spiritual, one of the spiritual emphasis weeks semester because that particular week made you extra special spiritual. Yeah. Um, oh, man. And forced, forced revivals. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, so the thing is, you didn't have to go like that. I know. Encouraged to go, um, but you didn't have to go. I never did. Um, <laughs> I was, and after, neither did I. I think I did the, my freshman year once. Yes, you know, me too. But, me too. Freshman year. And it felt awful. <laughs> I stopped going. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but a... we were there. We, we, we were doing starting theologians during the night of one of the spirit. And the professor said, you know, maybe, maybe we should be there right now. Like, you know, I guess I'm supposed to be there right now. Maybe you guys should be there right now. I was like, but I just can't, I just, I guess can't, I can't support the idea of making so many young people liars. Um, in the sense of an all these like these people will go up for an altar call and they'll just say, I'm not going to sleep with my girlfriend again, or I'm not going to drink again, or I'm not going to do this again, these things that I shouldn't be doing. And I'm going to recommit my life to Jesus. And he's like, you know what? Like there may be one or two people for whom this is transformative, but the vast majority of people are just going to go up and they'll be made liars. And that's worse. Um, that really stuck with me. And that the purpose of our worship, if it is our worship, is not to be liars, but to be present uh, in our in our confession and in our approach to God and God's embrace of us. And um, so that's, I think, early church history. You talk about Greek, you know, being the sort of eye-opening thing. Um, and for me, it was church history. Uh, just the Catholicity of it all, you know, and the, that there are far more important arguments going on back then. And they were just reasoned so well and like hard. Um, yeah. Yeah. Church history sitting with me. Yeah. Church history was, um, uh, as you know, being, uh, being in that social sciences department, they were, really big on uh, double and triple majors. So I tried to, right, right. I tried to pull off history, biblical literature, uh, double when I went in and then added writing and then eventually dropped, went from history writing and dropped Bible to a minor. But that was mm-hmm. what they were all about. But I, I took two church history classes cause they counted for both majors, um, which was part of the algebra they, they, they would do. Um, yeah, but I mean, I, I loved, uh, Church history one, which is up to the Re- Reformation, their survey style classes. Um, oh, yeah. Just for that reason, the the professor who taught it was not afraid to to you know assign huge swaths of uh, Tert- oh, man. Tertullian and and <clears throat> Origin and uh, the Gospel Doctor, of Thomas. Doctor R, we'll call him. Um, <laughs> Doctor R was like one of the first serious scholars that I ever encountered in my entire life. Yeah, he he and, was very intense and very. He had high expectations for you, um, mm-hmm. and he wasn't afraid to to pile it on you. Which I I mean, right. which I appreciated. That's what I mean. It was a survey class, and he's making these fifty kids like wrestle with some serious shit. 
<laughs> and and honestly, they were all better for it, whether they knew it or not. <laughs> yeah, um, I think he came. Um, he came that first semester of my junior year, maybe my sophomore year, um, and we had been in communication prior to that because I brought speakers to the school through a, a, a nonprofit college organization. And so I wanted to wed uh, some of those speaker programs to the honors college um, because then they could flip the bill. <laughs> and that's a way to, <laughs> you know, pay, pay for like share the responsibility. Um, but he, yeah, I, that first semester, I remember like 25 kids in the class and he would just said like i guarantee half of you are going to drop this class it's like at the end of the day you don't skip and the only way you're going to pass is by being here every single time and reading everything you won't pass my tests i was like man i i really respect that anyway um so there were seven of us at the end of that semester wow Uh, yeah he was true to his word Uh, he ended up having to teach i think one of them i mean it a lot of majors, a lot of those ministry majors, had to take that class, but um, mm-hmm. but it was man, it was so worthwhile. I bet I, I bet there are printouts somewhere in a storage unit somewhere. You got hell oh, totally. <laughs> my my wife made me get rid of some uh, <laughs> after this last move, but uh, um, so. So let's jump a little bit uh, further in, in your in your personal timeline here. Um, what happens after college? Um, well, and this actually circles back nicely. Uh, my break with quote unquote evangelicalism or whatever I think wasn't really solidified until um, the year after I left the school. Um, because you went on to seminary. I did. I did. Did you go directly into seminary? Directly. Okay. Um, So straight off from uh, from undergrad to uh, Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary in uh, South Hamilton, Massachusetts. Not to be confused with Gordon College, Um, historically, but not currently related places. Um, Myself and two classmates actually uh, ended up venturing out there at the same time to start our master's degrees and. and uh, there are some technical reasons why that didn't work out for me, but uh, I'm from Massachusetts. I kind of had always longed to be back on the East Coast and I love the ocean. Um, and it seemed like a great way to do that. And also it was a good school. And I kind of thought of it as a feeder school, like get a, something there and then you can build that into either a second master's or do a PhD um, at a bigger, better known school. And that's the only way you're ever going to be hired as a professor, which is kind of what I wanted to do. I wanted to do, um, uh, philosophical theology or something like that. Um, now mind you, I was a really, really crappy philosophy major in college. So, um, in the sense that it just didn't have the intellectual rigor, I was kind of lazy about it. I just liked it. Um, unlike history, which I really loved and did very well at, um, but yeah, I moved there August of 2003 and then got like dove right in and it was just too much. You know, I was like Baptist elementary school, homeschooled, 
evangelical college straight off to an evangelical seminary. And the conversations that we'd have in the dining hall were just like the conversations we were having in college. The ones that I'd stopped having after my sophomore year. You know, I just stopped giving a shit about Calvinism and Arminianism, Arminianism and like all that other stuff and predestination and the things that really, really like occupy the, the heart space of people who like that, like it was, it just wasn't good. Um, you know, and by the end of the semester or, or toward the end of the semester, and I'd been doing pretty well. I had one really good professor there, uh, who's now down at Vanderbilt and, uh, it was toward the end of the semester and he, uh, I was sitting in the dining hall, uh, by myself at a table by myself and he, he walked in and he's, He's, do you mind if I join you? I said, sure, of course, um, Dr. Lim. And he did. And he said, uh, Mr. Cleveland, I, I get the sense you will not be joining us again next semester. Uh, and I'm like, no, I won't. And I was, I was pretty severely depressed, uh, you know, for a lot of reasons. But I just didn't know why I was there. Um, I didn't know what I believed. Uh, and just being adult in the world, but just kind of, you know, at this, again, another kind of utopic place on a hill in an old monastery, studying theology again, like I, there was, I, I don't think it was a break. It just kind of, I was tired. I was just tired of it. And um, I withdrew from all of my classes. Um, didn't, didn't even finish the semester and, uh, I squatted on campus for another two months through the, through the Christmas holiday and, you know, uh, into the next semester. And, um, I was working at Starbucks at the time. Um, and, uh, I was a grown up in a place where the only people I knew I went to school with, but I was just leaving that school. I was like, what do I do? Like, I don't have purpose here. I don't have purpose. I just decided to see what would happen. Um, now, when I moved to Massachusetts, uh, I got a gig at Gordon College, uh, TAing in the philosophy department, and uh, just writing a lot of papers and proofreading and, and helping freshmen. They are required to take either antiquity or modernity, um, and so with antiquity, they would read, uh, you know. Five dialogues in Germany, they would read uh, Descartes' um, Meditations, I believe, um, and they read Descartes. So there's just a lot more of reading how, like, Socrates, Jesus was better than Socrates, and, you know, Rene Descartes' doubt was, you know, blah, blah, blah. And trying to help <laughs> kids work through, like, philosophical ideas without, like, preaching through them. Um, but that job led to my going to an Episcopal church uh, because that's where I first met that professor on a Sunday to like meet up and talk about Tiang. Um, it seemed there a natural transition from going to Lutheran churches and never having been Lutheran um, or becoming Lutheran, I guess I should say. Um, I just started going and it was really interesting because the timing, this is a church that, um, well, so I, I just kept going. I quit seminary and I, I like couch hopped for a bit. Um, 
I felt really inadequate because I was a child of promise. You know, I believed a lot of the narrative. Uh, in college, I was like super successful and, you know, very prominent. And even as an introvert, for whatever reason, I put myself in those positions and um, would write for the paper and did student government and all the other stuff. And then like now, five months later, six months later, I'm functionally homeless and I have a job that barely pays anything, but at least I've got health insurance and a job and I'm kind of going to this church, but don't really know anybody. And I don't know where I'm going to live and if I should stay there. Um, and I, and my parents, you know, sort of intervened really briefly, but they said, you know, you can always come home. And I, I, I very respectfully declined. Um, so I just need to see this through. And I, I did that for four years. I just kept working at Starbucks. But um, in that time, I ended up becoming friends with a lot of Gordon College kids. Uh, and I tell you what, Gordon College kids love to drink. Um, and they're allowed to. <laughs> uh, so, um, so, you know, that became the thing. It was like the bar scene on the North Shore of Boston working Working at Starbucks by day, one period of time I worked at a liquor store by night, uh, and then I was on a dart team out of a bar, out of a pub in the town. I was like four years after college, basically a townie in this place north of Boston with like zero ambition and zero anything. And it felt kind of really good because like I just didn't have to worry about anything, you know, but I was still going to church on and off and it kind of stopped for a little bit and, um, you know, I think the relationship with the church, and I don't want to, I mean, I don't know where this is going as far as a story or a conversation, but like, you know, I'd stopped feeling anything about Christianity. You know, I was like, I don't, I cognitively believe this stuff. I do. But like right now, I'm about as far from where I left this university setting and I don't really, and I'm for the first time really engaging with people who don't believe anything or believe very different things than what I believe. Um, I mean, pubs are great that way, right? If you, the, the trick is to read a book in a corner and somebody's bound to start talking to you. Um, and that became my life for four years. Um, you know, going out every night, drinking, and uh, playing darts and talking about politics and philosophy and theology and baseball and trying to go to church every now and again uh, and uh, not really sure what I believed. And then it was um, 2006. It was uh, an Easter. It was Easter morning. Um, and I hadn't, I hadn't felt anything for a long time. I kind of been whatever. And maybe this theme of feeling things is like I'm very distrustful of my emotional state um, because I found it to be varied. And so um, I try to be pretty critical about that. Um, but I was really hungover because, of course, it was out the night before. And uh, I went to the Christchurch, which is the Episcopal Church, I actually ran into a friend at Starbucks beforehand. And, um, we were going to be late, but we went. It was packed, 
and uh, like there was the only seats left were at the back of the the nave, and uh, so when you, the kneeling parts of the liturgy, and so the Episcopal Church, like the Catholic Church, follows uh, liturgical structure. Um, it was like kneeling on the slabs of concrete or whatever they were during the prayers hungover and uh, the priest called the fraction. It's when the the priest cracks the wafer um, and this priest was pretty dramatic. He had this enormous wafer and you could hear it resonate all the way at the back of the, the church. Uh, crack the wafer and then the words are Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us and the people respond therefore let us keep the feast. Alleluia. And I found myself really fixating on those words, Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us. Um, and kind of didn't hear much else beyond that, that uh, for the rest of the service. I think this is legitimately the only religious experience I've had in my entire life, other than like emotional responses to things. Um, and it was just the question that I'd been avoiding for a couple of years. And it was the question of like, do you believe that? do you believe Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us? Because if you don't, just stop. You just need to stop. And I found that I did, and I do. Um, And interestingly, at that period of time um, was when the big split was going on in the Episcopal Church over gay marriage, um, or really the ordination of a, a gay bishop. Uh, Gene Robinson and uh, Christ Church was in the middle of this. With a, they ended up rupturing as a, a parish and a priest friend is now the uh, the priest there. Uh, who was, uh, but I, I decided, you know, like this isn't. I'm just really figuring out and rediscovering what it means to be a Christian, and this place is about to tear apart. I can't do that here. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, so that same priest friend who's now the priest there, uh, father gray, uh, I kind of knew him in passing and I knew he was at a church in Boston, uh, proper like downtown. And, um, I, I wrote him an email or called him and said, Hey, I'd like to get lunch with you. And so I did. And I met him down in the city and I didn't have a car at that point in time because like life was so destitute and I was so broke. Like I couldn't afford to fix my car and um it ended up getting towed away because i'd left it parked too long in the spot because i couldn't move it anywhere uh, um so taking the train into the city and, and i went and we had lunch and we had one of the most interesting conversations he said you know i know you go to christ church you know i'm at the advent and uh you know if you're really serious about this because i approached him and told him about that experience and said and i actually thought like if i really believe this then i'm going to become a priest you know, like that's like, it's total, totally bipolar responses. Like, I'm not sure what I believe I'm going <laughs> to yeah. become a priest. Um, whole hog, whole hog. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he, he said something very good. He's like, you know, I just don't believe in church topics. So if you're going to come here, commit, you know, and, uh, and I did. And that was where I, until my wife and I moved to New Mexico six weeks ago, um, that's the parish that I actually, I think became a Christian in. Um, you know, and very high church Anglo-Catholic as uh, the like Oxford, first Oxford movement church in the United States and smells and bells, the priests face the altar vestments, you know, it's like more Catholic than Catholic in so many ways. Um, <laughs> and they were not dealing with those issues about the schism um, in the Episcopal church. 
and the priests were really engaged and I still love them dearly, but I, I don't know how to unpack those 10 years. Um, other than to say that like, I'm like the Eucharist is the, the thing that I think about the most regarding Christianity. So I don't really do identity stuff and I don't really do, um, a lot of dogmatic theology anymore. Um, but that matter matters to God that we are, you know, we are meaningful, um, because God says so. Um, it, there's a lot of things that have happened, like a really bad relationship with a non-Christian girl and, uh, like a couple of other things that happened in, in that period of time. But, um, it took until I was, you know, in my late twenties and then into my thirties that I really began thinking about what, uh, being a Christian is. And I certainly don't believe it is, uh, you know, hiding Bibles or preaching to people or, uh, trying to convert them. I think, I think that, uh, in so much as I wanted to argue with people in the past, um, this is the father, uh, this guy, uh, father Alexander Schmemann, um, he was, was an Eastern Orthodox priest and, uh, he wrote some journals and one of his journals, uh, he talks about the difference, like this, I don't want to say the sin, but like the difference, uh, between, uh, the truth and being right. And that sometimes being right is not the truth mm -hmm. um, because the truth is the love of God, you know, given for all people um, uh, for the life of the world. He would argue like given for the life of the world. Um, but that being right is me trying to win. And God isn't about winning. Um, it's about being drawn into the life of God. So that was a meandering meander. <laughs> No, it it was all great. I mean, you you shared a lot. You shared a lot, and I think uh, there there are, are lots of people that have these these periods. Um, but I, that moment you had at the Eucharist, like that that some people would describe that as like a mystical moment, or uh, like as you said, like a true religious experience. Mm -hmm. Um, and that started this process of you being able to evaluate the idea of Christianity in a new way. Um, one of the things you mentioned earlier was this idea that within the context of you being of growing, the context of you growing up, um, certainty wasn't really ever there. Mm -hmm. Um, you were always sort of doubting yourself, doubting your salvation, doubting all these things that you weren't doing enough Certainty was always sort of out of out of reach, but what is it about the Episcopal services and the Eucharist that allows you to not even have to ask that question, not even have to really worry about your doubts or about your performance in front of a rewarding God? Yeah. Uh, to, uh, to be fair... Um... I'm not going to lie and say I don't still struggle with those things. Um, all of these years later, uh, I think that I think our friend Steve Jones posted something on the Facebook about um, that there's a there's a trauma to confronting or facing trauma, you know. So it does carry with you uh, a little ways. But as far as certainty, um, this is going to sound really, really like not 
serious, but I just stopped caring about being certain um, because I realized that it had nothing to do with it, that God is not a proof, um, that God is not, not even material, you know, and that um, a, metaphys- a metaphysical way of thinking about the world is like, you know, all those billions and billions of years ago, if we talk about the, 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 the beauty of God speaking existence into existence, which I do believe, you know, but not in the you know, creationist narrative, but like that all things emanate from the, 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 the speaking of God. Um, and I, you know, I'm a part of that and you're a part of it and the people we love are a part of it. But part, one of the great, one of the main problems I had with certainty was like feeling the meaning of it. Um, like, need to backtrack a second and say sure. that um, traditional Christianity, quote unquote, that things are really bad way to say it, but traditional Christianity is not, um, it, it's supposed to take away mystery, not the mystery of God, but like the mystery of the world. Um, because Christ being Christ, being fully God and fully man, you know, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God from God, like, like true God of true God, begotten, not made, um, all of those things, like, really easy to say. Sometimes people, you know, temptation to cross one's fingers, etc. But, like, I actually believe that, you know, you know the, the implications of the incarnation are such, and this is where I am, uh, to be honest, like, I know it's either this or it's nothing. So in my mind, um, it's either this or it's nothing. And I continue to battle with that a lot, but I believe that if Christianity is true and if God is real, that this physicality, this place, we're not designed to escape it, but we're designed to be in it. And that the, the Eucharist is, it's, it's tangible. And it isn't tangible like a like a sort of idolatrous like oh which you know like that's the way I was raised to believe about that stuff but like that we can ingest God you know um, and that God is was fully enfleshed in all the other things that people say but it gives like real meaning because otherwise in my mind absent the absent the incarnation like people want to say jesus loves me like or he's a really good guy um and i think that's perfectly fine you know but if jesus isn't god who gives a shit if he loves you like at the end of the day he's just a dude so this dude from the past loves you great and that's okay it's just or the moral message but that's not where I can be. That's not where I am. And it's like the real, not feeling like I'm escaping being here. I think that's the thing. Like the Eucharist and the tradition continue to point back to me, my heart back to like, I am, I'm here. Not supposed to be trying to get out of here. I'm supposed to be here. Mm-hmm. And whatever the implications of that are, I'm still working through um, like how to actually love while being here, not love as an abstraction. 
um, trying to learn how to not be secretive, uh, trying to um, not win arguments, and and then and seeing not just seeing people like as commodities or like souls that need to escape this mortal coil, as they say, but as a world that, you know, when the end of whatever happens, whether it be Donald Trump or, you know, the apocalypse or Vladimir (laughs) Putin or some other time down the road, um, that this is a song that is absorbed into the, the ongoing song that is the prayer of the church and of all the creation over all of time to be joined in God. Like that's, but it isn't some spiritual thing away from it. It's really here, really now. And this is, this is what we have. This is it. (laughs) So, (laughs) yeah. um, Yeah. That, that really resonates with me too. And I mean, that's, that's very powerful. I mean, that's more powerful than the alternative of thinking it's all going to burn someday. It's so much more powerful than that. Um because it it makes everything sacred. Um well, Shmeimon used to um and I think there's a real uh, I have a real fear in having these conversations, Blake, because I um like I'm a, a human dude who is working through things and, you know, could be terribly wrong about almost all of it, probably, um, in some case, but I really want as a, an addendum to say that like, I, I arrive at this and it's not in any way a condemnation toward other people or an argument against them, just kind of where I am. Um, but I don't have answers. Um, but I, really and powerfully moved in this direction, even if like every single day I fail to be that thing that I'm hoping to be. And I've come to terms with that and I'm like, okay with that. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and that's, but, yeah. and yeah, I mean, I, we can, we can talk about the flip side of certainty, which is, which is doubt. I mean, and I, and I, I think, um, I think there's something to, something I'm kind of discovering as I'm talking to people is that I think there's something to finding dissatisfaction in the religious tradition you were brought up in and then find finding satisfaction in another one. Um, so, and I think that that, that that actually has implications for how we process both our feelings of faith and our feelings of doubt. Um, so even despite the, even despite the, the beautiful, imagery that that you that you described and very eloquently so about it's here it's now it's god we ingest god and all those things all all those things on a bad day <laughs> you don't it's it's you know on you have a bad day you don't you don't see that beauty you see you're a nihilist well, for a day you know um, and, and that's and that's think, human that's humanity <laughs> and i think in in con i mean in uh, I mean, the problem of evil and all the other business, you know, that, um, I, those are serious conversations. I'm not meaning to brush them aside, but like, they're the eternal some of the, conversations. They're, right. <laughs> they're I mean, always like, I'm there. Thinking, and like, this is causing me to think back through like the imperfections of family and the very real like pain caused by events and like 
two years ago, like a, a friend of mine in Boston shot himself and I've lost a son. And, you know, there are other people are struggling in different ways. And like the world can feel so real that you don't want it to be, you know? Um, and I think that's something that Nate has talked about as well, but like this happy clappy, everything is going to be okay. Christianity, um, isn't Christianity. It just isn't. And uh, people are welcome to disagree with me on that point. But like when we talk about a suffering God, or if, I mean, uh, you know, technically God is immutable, so it's changeless, he can't suffer, blah, blah, blah. Um, but we, it's so fucking real. And if you're living in it really real, your heart can't but break. Yeah. And at the same time, we know the song of salvation and it isn't salvation because somebody has got to be saved and say a prayer and go to heaven. No, it's being, being saved into this world so that we can love people, you know, and I fail at that all of the time. And like in my marriage and in my relationship with my family, like I am in a, I, I build estrangements by nature, you know, um, because I'm so, so private, but that's part of this thing is like being private is not living in the world. You know, it's not living, or at least in the way that I experience it. And so that's where, like, every Sunday, the Eucharist is, I mean, man, like, I don't have an experience, you know, but I do. I preached a sermon about it once, you know, when I was uh, discerning for the priesthood. And um, it was academic. But the thrust was that. It's like, matter matters to God. And like, if it really does and it matters to us, then we're going to suffer with, you know? Um, and I'm not saying that life is all suffering, but I don't think this is where Christianity in the West, part in the rant, uh, seems to forget itself and seems to believe that constitutional, constitutionally delineated rights or guaranteed rights are somehow from God and they aren't, um, but that the church and Christianity is and always should be something different than those things um, other than the state or a party or whatever else. And that, frankly, we aren't promised unless you have like a utopic, you know, vision of everybody joining hands together in the world. I just don't see I don't see that type of perfection occurring. And uh, I think it's very Hegelian. Um, but. We are supposed to see the thing is like, yes, there's suffering world, but there's a shit ton of joy too. You know what I mean? Like there's a yeah. lot of really happy stuff. And I think we don't let ourselves see that happy stuff, that good stuff, where we try to make it more than it is instead of just saying, wow, that was amazing. Okay. Um, anyway, sorry. <laughs> don't apologize. Don't, never, don't apologize for, for saying wonderful things <laughs> that I get to listen to. <laughs> and then I get to share with other people. Um, so I know you've already kind of addressed this, um, but and you not kind of you have you you sort of talked about the the reasons why why you've decided to stay, why you've decided to continue this sort of path of of seeking seeking to understand this great this great mystery. I mean, language kind of falls apart, right? 
um, it, it does. <laughs> and, uh, uh, there's a, um, oh, who is it? Modest Mouse has, has a great lyric, probably my favorite lyric by them, which is languages of the liquid that were all dissolved in great for, great for solving problems after it creates the problem. <laughs> um, so anyways, language kind of falls apart when you're trying to talk about these sorts of things. Um, but what is it about, um, the way, what is it about Christianity that makes you want to stay? And since you've rejected this sort of compulsory sort of uh, type of worship, type of experience, and you, you feel that is false, um, you don't want to necessarily trust in your emotions, um, what is it like your, uh, I think you used the term method of knowing, um, what's, what's, what's that kind of like for you at this point in your life? I know that's a really broad question and I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I mean, don't apologize. It's, um, it's a good question. Uh, the, and I did mention earlier, I mean, it, for me, um, it's either real or it's not. And I, and I, I guess I choose in a sense. I'm not going to get into that debate, you know, the, the, what is choosing. Um, but I, I choose it and, and not the alternative. Um, I, um, I know I'd be a pretty awful human being if, um, it were the alternative, I think. Um, because frankly, I don't see any grounds for morality or like whatever. I don't think Christianity is about morality anyway. It isn't, it's not a moral religion and the Bible is not, um, some other part of the Godhead. Uh, it's, it's a book, um, that God works and uses and we use da, da, da. But as far as why do I, why do I keep, what gets me going every Sunday morning with my son and, uh, going to mass and, uh, reading theology still and all that other stuff. It's like, I, I'm, I, I pray so poorly. Uh, I think it's just the hope of being changed you know, and not being better, you know, whatever that means, but being open to being transformed. It's the only way that I know. Um, so maybe that's a cop out. Uh, but because nothing about it, nothing about Christianity, at least, or how I understand Christianity, uh, has anything to do with me, you know, being a prideful movie. It's all about weakness and giving and love and being, being humbled and seeing each other and being grateful and not all these different things. And I'm saying it so poorly. Um, it's not a self-improvement project, so I don't mean to uh, mean it in that way, but like, I am curious, you know, and maybe I will never see, but, I'm curious what the outcome of all of this will be. Um, and open to learning to pray better, um, maybe be better. And this is a really shitty answer, but uh, I think <laughs> yeah. it's the most, it's the most that I can, I can say because I see there's nothing natural to going to mass every Sunday to what I want to do. Like that, like none of, none of it, I mean, there are always spaces for it, but none of it makes sense if I really wanted to get ahead in the world 
or wanted to be in control of my life or whatever. It's a, it's a waste of time. You know, if that's your goal and if it's because it doesn't come naturally, it's because I pray so poorly um, and because I doubt a lot in my heart um, that I keep coming back because I know here is an invitation and it isn't an invitation to get saved, but it's an invitation to be human and to see glory in other people and to kneel next to them. People that I would never agree with probably on a thousand different things, but being in the same place at the same time, being invited by the same invitation to take and eat and then go into the world. And that's incredibly powerful. I mean, yeah, that's the, yeah, the invitation to an abundant life um, and trying to understand what the hell that even means. <laughs> like that's, that is a strong motivation <laughs> that, that is the motivation. And I, and I think if, I mean, I, I don't know. That's the most honest, that's the most honest thing you can say. Not sin management, not <laughs> nothing like right. that. It's not about, uh, it's not God in his checkboxes, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, um, so, I mean that, <laughs> sorry, I'm kind of trailing off now. Um, that's okay. It's the nature. Yeah. It's my, it's my fault. And, and no, I don't, don't. I, I didn't, I intentionally didn't think about what to talk about on uh, this call because like, it's all part of a, an experiment to yeah, actually talk I, about it. I mean, this is all part of a, this is all part of a larger experiment. I mean, I'm, I, the, the sole motivating factor here is that I, you know, I I know that we all have this cultural shorthand. We all, uh, everybody that's been on this podcast, anyone that would be interested in listening to it, has these experiences that shaped us, but don't define us anymore. Or you know, there there's something to process, and so it's all an experiment. Um, and uh, there's just so many different ways we've all, um you know, run up against the walls of, of, um, evangelicalism. And I'm so thankful you say evangelical <laughs> <laughs> because it's the right way. Yes. Thank um, you. Thank you. <laughs> yes. I keep getting comments about it. <laughs> I know. I, I, I see the trolls. I see the trolls <laughs> on the Facebook. I don't, as a principal engage in much of the Facebookery. Um, it exists as a platform to share pictures of my son with relatives. Uh, um, I've got to come up with a better means, but yes, you've been picked on unfairly for, (laughs) for, for taking the high road. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah. Uh, let's, let's see. I mean, you've touched on, on a whole, uh, number of wonderful, wonderful ideas. Um, I I just want to thank you for being as open and vulnerable and sharing sharing for someone who you you say you're a private person you you are being very open and I want to give you all the credit for that and it's not an easy thing to share uh it took me like 3 years to to, <laughs> to even truly consider doing this <laughs> so hey, I I know how I go re- I know I'm really grateful that you did um, I know how that, I know how that goes. Um, so 
I just want to, um, I really just want to thank you for, uh, for sharing what you have. Is there anything else that we haven't really touched on that you want to, that you want to go over? Um, I mean, and I can edit any of this out too. So, I mean, we can go right to another topic or, um, whatever else you might think. Um, I don't think we need to edit anything. Um, (laughs) but I mean, I think that the one thing I'm, I'm cautious of is I, I don't um, talk or write or do much uh, about this stuff these days um, because I don't consider myself evangelical. Uh, and I, I, we, when we first talked, uh, you know, living living in a city, it's interesting going back to the, the, the school that shall not be named, but I accidentally named. Um, <laughs> uh, I was mentioning to you that, um, you know, when, when we spoke before, uh, I'd gone back a couple years ago um, just for you know, shits and giggles because I happen to be in Indianapolis for work. I think one of the more heartbreaking things about um, that experience is, uh, you know, there's this impulse to create people to change the world. And I think both, both uh, the idea of what the world is, this is where like the incarnational stuff really matters because like, I don't, from from a classical Christian perspective, the world is redeemed, so uh, it doesn't need to be changed um, <laughs> in the sense that is being meant. But also, like the environment creates people capable of working in a bubble that they they exist in. And I, you know what? If if people are in communion with God and uh, and are loving their family and loving their neighbors. I don't really care, you know, at the end of the day, we might have theological differences or whatever, but moving to the city and, or like living in Boston and just plunging in, like I was a a regular at a lot of different places and getting to know mostly people who don't believe anything. And, you know, um, now coming to terms with what it means to be like a a hypocrite in some ways, you know, uh, I don't mean that in the bad way, but like that everybody is, um, because I had my own piousnesses uh, in those phases as well. But I sort of commented to a friend while visiting the school those years ago that like this place, you know, I never ran into students from our school or hardly ever, you know, in this major metropolis uh, or people from similar places. Um, And that if people are being like, if you do the numbers, you know, how many people are graduating a year? They're supposed to be going out and changing the world. What world What world is being changed? I'm curious. Uh, um, and, you know, I just... I think one of the, the things that leads to doubt, that did for me, you know, in a lot of ways, is just not being prepared and also being sold a bill of goods about... It's just bad theology at the end of the day. It's just, like, really, really shitty theology. Um, and that... That's where my qualm, if I have a qualm with the evangelical tradition, is that it is like it's got certain things okay, but it is it is not deep, uh, or at least not deep in the same ways of, of of holistic theologies that are separate from. We can access out if we want, but oh um, no, no, I think this is this is key. Uh, I, um, I didn't really, I, I wasn't sure how to necessarily lead to this topic, but I think you're absolutely right. I mean, um, um, yeah. Exiting that, um, exiting that college does not prepare does or any sort of Christian college similar to that, where you have strict rules and strict um, standards of behavior and all those name, all those manner of things. I mean, it does not 
prepare you for life outside. And, and I, under, and and I, I understand mean, the impulse to like want to preserve innocence. You know, uh, I'm a father after all, you know, you're a father, but it, it goes beyond the pale when it gets to that point. Right. And I mean, I just used, I said life outside subconsciously. That's the language of like prison. Like <laughs> I said that yeah, like subconsciously. Yeah. I mean it's it's about being like sheltered. It's about being put in mm-hmm. a bunker, you know. Right. Uh, like um It's like Kimmy Schmidt writ large. <laughs> yeah. And uh and so I mean I swear to gosh, you know, that is just ridiculous. Yeah. Um yeah. and so and it and it it creates a it just creates a, a really rude awakening that's not necessary. And it's coupled and supported by that, that shallow theology you mentioned. I mean, mm-hmm. that shallow theology is the whole premise of everything, but it does not stand to scrutiny. Um, and that is unfortunate. Um, and I'm not really sure how to attack that. I mean, uh, neither am I, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, <laughs> Besides talking about it, and that's what I'm happy that 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 we're doing. So, yeah, yeah I I really don't I I don't know, but I I'm I'm in rousing agreement with you. You know, <laughs> it, yeah. and in that aspect, it does not prepare you for for life, and that's unfortunate. No. And I I mean, sort of part of the the years that were in the intervening years between college and whatever year it was. I didn't, I didn't know how to navigate the quote unquote world, you know? Um, and that led to some, some degree of suffering that, you know, I guess you can be better by, but like <clears throat> some of it, not so much. And I don't know, uh, I'm sort of mentally exhausted right now. So I don't, I yeah. don't know. I, my, yeah. my real, my real hope is like that I, behind every honest thing, I, I really want to be clear like there like there isn't this perfection like it's not i know the dangers of eloquence and you know whatever else and it's it's been a it can have can be and has been a screen for me in the past um and, and so but i really believe these things um and you know on a lighter note you know i have no longer continuing in my love affair with the republican party so there's that um <laughs> But um, <laughs> I am a conservative. I do want to say that, uh, but it's uh, not, not uh, I'm sort of in the anarcho-monarchist sort of way. <laughs> so. That's very specific. So yeah. uh, good luck finding a party um, that yeah, represents that. Um, party of one. Party of one. There you go. <laughs> 100%. Unelectable. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for filling in that gap. <laughs> no problem. Uh, um, well, Nathan, thanks so much for for sharing um, on in so many different ways. I, I'm really glad you agreed to to come on the show and, and talk. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. I mean, jitters are gone, and it's been a really good experience. And I really, this is thank you for continuing to do this. Um, it's wonderful. So. Thank you. If not scary. Have a good night, Blake.